like that? Yeah. I like the fake applause at the very beginning. It always gives me extra pumped up. Hey, welcome. Good morning, guys. Glad that you are here. Glad to see some faces we haven't seen in a little while. Um, new faces, love to see that. And out there online, wherever you are, whenever it is, middle of the night, whenever, we're glad that you're joining us. I am excited to share the word that we have for today. Um, we're in a series called The Heralds of Christmas. So leading up to Christmas, every Every church, pretty much everywhere in the world, has a special, either a series or sometime coming up to Christmas. And usually those series, conventional wisdom, especially conventional pastor wisdom, is that those series are kind of fluffy. They're kind of lighter. They're kind of more, you know, Christmassy. That's really not in my DNA. I tried really hard to put together just a fluffy message and it didn't happen. That's not how it came out. Uh, that's not how the Lord led me. For those of you who are interested in fluff and really came just expecting to leave with some fluff, we've got a bag of cotton balls in the back. You can grab some on the way out and share them with family and friends because um, that's not what you're going to get in the word here today. Um, we have got a meaty word. And I think so many times Christmas is reduced to a cartoon. It really is. Whether, you know, I don't know. It's hard to say. Everybody seems to love Christmas. Atheists, Christians, they all seem to just enjoy Christmas. You know, people are a little kinder, nicer, gentler. It always just seems to be nice. And I think that's why it's such a nice time of year. Because it's not only Christians or good friends who are nice to you. It seems like just everybody's little nicer everywhere you go. And I started thinking about why that is. Why do even non-Christians celebrate Christmas? Why is that? And I think it's because it's been diluted. It's been watered down so much that really, honestly, you could celebrate Christmas without ever acknowledging Jesus at all. You could celebrate the cartoons, the gift-giving, Santa at the mall, the tree. You could do all of those things and never really even have to acknowledge the reason that we do Christmas. And it's been done that. Society has done that. Just watered it down, diluted it, commercialized it, co-opted it with cartoons. And again, it's just become just a shell of really what it means. And I would argue that if that is what's happened, and I think that's what's happened in our culture, it's because Christians have allowed it to happen. Now, I don't mean we should rail against everything that's fun about Christmas. Christmas is fun. It's okay to have fun. Christians everywhere around the world, we can have fun. Let's not sit and argue about how a Christmas tree is a pagan fertility symbol and, and all, just stop it. Let's just have fun. But underlying that fun is something that's very serious, and that is the message of Christmas, which is not a day. It's not a week. It's not a month. It's really not even a season. Christmas, I believe, needs to be a mindset. It needs to be a year-long, year-round mindset that those who follow Jesus Christ and call him their Lord and Savior we need to hold to that truth. We should be the standard bearers of what that truth is to the world. 
Now, I don't mean go down and put down the way everybody else does Christmas. That's not what a standard bearer does. A standard bearer holds up the truth and says, look at this. This is the truth. I'm not going to acknowledge or, or argue about what you want to do, but this is the truth. That's what we should do. And we should do it in a loving way, and that will attract people in. But <clears throat> at its core, Christmas is meant to be and is the celebration of God's promise to bring a Savior into this world. That's what Christmas is. And if we go all the way back to the very first promise, now if you watched the message last week, you heard me talk about this, but a little recap for those who haven't. The very first message of good news, the very first promise, it's called the Proto-Evangelium. Throw that out at your next Christmas party. Genesis 3.15. God says this to the serpent who had deceived uh, Adam and Eve and made trouble for him. He says this, I will make enemies of you and the woman and of your offspring and her descendant. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. That's the promise right there. That's the promise. God said, okay, Satan, you tried this. You think you might be successful. But there's a plan. There's always been a plan. I knew you were going to do that, and here's the plan. This is how it's going to work out. And when we get to Christmas, the season, it should be this ongoing celebration of those promises being fulfilled in the birth of Jesus. Okay, there's still a battle going on. We talk about this all the time, at least I do anyway. Just because, just because the battle still rages doesn't mean it hasn't been won already. We see this all throughout history. If any of you are history buffs, we see in, in World War II, in any sort of a major battle, there's always this tipping point. There's a point at which pretty much both sides will acknowledge, we know where this is going to end up. But the fighting doesn't stop right then. The fighting continues. There is still a battle. The battle was won the day that Jesus Christ came to earth in the flesh. Emmanuel, God with us. On that day that he was born in the flesh, the battle was won. The war was won. However, fighting continues. And it will for some time until we get to that final point. But that, church, that's what we celebrate. When we think of Christmas, that's it. It's a mindset of thankfulness for what we have received. Thankfulness that God has always fulfilled his promises to us, and he always will. And so that ought to be our mindset. And as disciples of Jesus, we remember that, and we should celebrate that. And then go one step further and proclaim that truth to the world. Proclaim his glory. That's why the title of the series, The Heralds of Christmas. We're going to go through and we talk about herald angels we talk about those who heralded the, the arrival of, of the Christ child, but ultimately that's us. We are the heralds. It's been passed from angels to human beings, and then now to us. Some of us are human beings too. Amen. And it's been, amen, for sure. It's been given to us. What an honor. What an honor for us to get to carry that torch and herald the arrival of Jesus to the world. Again, not just on Christmas morning. So if you were here last week, you heard this. But if not, I, want to, I just want to recap the official dictionary definition of what a herald is. 
Okay, you might picture this comical, you know, person blowing a, blowing a trumpet and, you know, reading a scroll or something is what a herald is. But here's what a herald is. The, the actual definition, an official messenger, usually an officer, with the status of ambassador acting as official messenger between leaders, especially in times of war or conflict. Isn't that what we are? We are ambassadors of Christ in a time of war, in a time of conflict. We are the very definition of ambassadors of Christ, of heralds of Christ. That's why, you ever wonder why herald angels are always pictured blowing a trumpet? Always picture that. We've seen them, Christmas ornaments and cartoons and every single thing. They're portrayed blowing a trumpet because we are in a war. We are in a war. They are the trumpets of war. Those trumpets don't sound for peace. They sound for war. And that's what's happening. The death blow to Satan was dealt on what we call Christmas Day. That's the death blow to Satan. He doesn't know it yet, but he is a dead man walking. His time is drawing to an end, whether he knows it or not. He just hasn't surrendered yet. So you think about that battle that God had ordained from the very beginning and knew how it was going to turn out. This is all no surprise to God. But in typical God's style, I love his sense of humor. I love the way he does things. If you're thinking that this ultimate battle, okay, the the Messiah being sent into the world to battle the schemes of the enemy, to overcome Satan and 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 his legions of demons... You're picturing, you're picturing what Scripture says, ultimately, a Messiah on a, on a white horse, and, and there's fire and flames, and there's all kinds of really dramatic stuff going on. You're picturing that. What did God send? A baby. God sent a baby, this tiny little thing, born in the most humble circumstances to the most humble, unlikely parents, in the most unlikely place. And that is the one he sent in the world to crush the serpent's head. That is not, amen, for sure, that is not what anybody would have been expecting up to and including Satan. Because see, Satan knows Scripture too. We're taught Satan uses Scripture and he knows it all the time. We see the one famous that everybody knows about is when Satan is tempting Jesus in the wilderness, when he begins his ministry. Satan's quoting scripture to Jesus, and he's quoting it correctly. He's misusing it, but he's quoting it correctly. He knows scripture. But God used the circumstances and fooled Satan in a way that only God could have orchestrated. I love this. So think about some of the scripture that was available at that time, okay, at the time of of Jesus' birth, and all the way up until it would have been all what we call Old Testament Scripture, right, talks extensively about what the Messiah is going to look like. Not physical characteristics, but how it's going to happen. Talks about that. It's no surprise. It's not hidden. It's hidden in plain sight for those whose eyes aren't open to see. Listen to this. Scripture tells us all these things. I got seven bullet points here. The Messiah would, number one, be born of a woman. Okay, so if you're Satan, 
And you're going like, okay, guys, we got to be ready for this Messiah to come into the world because that's when the battle really starts. So he's going, okay, Scripture tells us, born of a woman, Genesis 3.15, born of a woman, Satan. Okay, okay, guys, demons, we're looking for a woman, probably of some kind of royal stature. She'd probably be some kind of a special woman. We're watching for that. Okay, number two, the Messiah would be born in Bethlehem. That's from Micah 5.2. So, okay, let's watch Bethlehem. That really narrows it down for us. Let's watch Bethlehem. Because it's going to be obvious this woman will be pregnant. She'll be in Bethlehem. She's probably a woman of stature. We can probably pick out who it's going to be even beforehand. All right. So they're watching for that. Mary and Joseph were from Nazareth, not from Bethlehem. So if Satan was all staking out Bethlehem, waiting and watching, he was looking in the wrong place. If Satan was watching Bethlehem, he completely missed it. Now, if he was watching midwives at the inns, so go, go to Bethlehem, there'd be a number of places where midwives would be there. And if you were pregnant and you were getting ready to give birth, you would find one of these midwives and it would probably be in one of the inns and they'd have a special room or place set up for it, most likely in a town like that. So let's watch them. Okay, so he's staking out his demons at these various places like watch and let me know if you see anything out of the ordinary. Probably watching for some kind of a royal welcoming committee. Certainly there'll be some kind of pomp and circumstance and and some troops or something arriving with the Messiah. Let's watch for that. He would have been doing all those things. Number three, the Messiah would be born of a virgin. That's from Isaiah 7.14. Okay, virgins were usually unmarried. Mary was not. So he would have completely missed that. Mary would have been off the radar then. They're looking in entirely the wrong place. Number four, the Messiah would come from the line of Abraham. That's from Genesis 12. The Messiah would be a descendant of Isaac and Jacob. We're further narrowing down the possibilities. Make should make it easier for Satan to find him. The Messiah would come from the tribe of Judah. That's from Genesis 49. The Messiah would be heir to David's throne. 2 Samuel and Isaiah talk about that. So all of these things that would point to, okay, here's how you find this Messiah when he comes. But no matter how powerful Satan is, he's not God. No matter how smart he is, how clever he is, he's not God. And more importantly than that, he's a created being, and he does not have the illumination of the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit is not helping out Satan. Satan's on his own. And looking at all the things coming together, he is not able to piece together what is going down here. I love that. And like most everybody else, Satan did not recognize the arrival into the world of the Messiah. Not until he heard the trumpets blow. The trumpets of war. So now we go back to the definition of a herald. You don't often hear the trumpets of war in a Christmas message, do you? It's not warm and fuzzy. This is a good message. This is a feel-good message because we win the battle. Back to the definition of a herald. Those who proclaim the coming of the kingdom of God are serving notice that the days of the enemy's dominion on earth are coming to an end, whether he knows it or not. 
they are coming to an end. So the next time you see this, we've all seen a million versions. The next time you see something like this, whether it's wrapping paper or at the mall, a decoration or a, or a greeting card, whatever it is, it looks very peaceful, right? A little cherub, he's, he's tooting his little horn. It's almost cute, right? But the next time you see that, I want you to think about what's really happening here. And it's more like this. That is a herald angel blowing the trumpets of war. It's on. It's on, Satan. That's what I want to picture. The first to herald the arrival of the Messiah that he has come was the angel Gabriel. And he announced the news to Mary. Mary, who was, to put it lightly, incredulous. Like, I'm not sure what's happening here. A lot of these scriptures are familiar, but let's talk about them. Luke chapter 1, verse 26, 27. Now in the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city in Galilee named Nazareth, to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, of the descendants of David. And the virgin's name was Mary. So remember, if Satan is watching Bethlehem, Nazareth was not on his radar. Luke 1, 28, 29. And coming in, he said to her, Greetings, favored one, the Lord is with you. But understatement of the century, she was very perplexed at this statement and was pondering what kind of greeting this was. She had no idea this was coming. And all of a sudden, an angel comes to her and says that. She's like, okay. And she had to be waiting for it. And she didn't have to wait long. Luke 1, 30 to 33. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High, and the Lord God will give him the throne of his father David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever, and his kingdom will have no end. Fulfilling that prophecy, the descendant of Jacob, an heir to the throne of David. All these things. Luke 1, 34, 35. But Mary said to the angel, How will this be, since I am a virgin? The angel answered and said to her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. For that reason also the Holy Child will be called the Son of God. Born of a virgin. Fulfilling all of those prophetic words. Now that Mary knew... Another understatement, now that Mary knew what was happening, probably be a good idea to tell Joseph too. Because try to explain that to your husband without some sort of divine intervention. Matthew 1, 18, 19. Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah was as follows. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be pregnant by the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, since he was a righteous man and did not want to disgrace her, plan to send her away secretly. Some people read that and go, wow, he was planning to send her away. He's kind of a jerk just because of that. This was not only culturally acceptable at the time, but culturally necessary, expected. He would have been expected to send her away had she been found to be pregnant before they came together. So this is not he's a bad guy for even thinking about that, that was what was supposed to happen. But the Lord had other ideas. 
Matthew 1, 18 to 21. But when he had thought this over, so Joseph's thinking it over. When he had thought this over, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not be afraid to take Mary as your wife. For the child who has been conceived in her is of the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son, and you shall name him Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. Now, most likely, that angel, again, is, is Gabriel. doesn't tell us for sure in Scripture, but it's most likely it's Gabriel. So now Mary knows. Now Joseph knows. And I'm sure they're talking, like, I had a dream last night. Did you? So they're talking about this, comparing notes, like, what, the, what is this going to look like? Fast forward just a little bit. The next to herald the Messiah is Elizabeth, Mary's sister. Luke 1, 39, 40. Now at this time, Mary set out and went in a hurry. So that's like almost immediately after hearing that she was going to be pregnant with that. Went out in a hurry to the hill, company, hill country to a city of Judah. And she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. Luke 1, 41. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leapt in her womb. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. Filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the only way a situation like this could be illuminated for what it is. Filled with the Holy Spirit. And what Elizabeth says next could only have come from the Holy Spirit. Luke 1, 42, 43. And she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Now remember, that sounds great. This is Mary's sister. Okay, Elizabeth and Mary are sisters. How many of you with sisters, you're pregnant also, are going to greet your sister like that? The mother of my Lord has come to me. Only through the Holy Spirit could she have known the significance of what was happening right in front of her. And she continues, Luke 1, 44, 45. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy. And blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. Yeah, what was spoken to her by the Lord was illuminated in that moment by the Holy Spirit. Now at the same time, Zechariah, Elizabeth's husband, at his own son's birth, remember who Zechariah and Elizabeth's son is? It's John the Baptist. But at his own son's birth, Zechariah says this, Luke 1, 67-68, And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited us and accomplished redemption for his people. He recognized filled with the Spirit, what was happening there. Now, he's not talking about John the Baptist, his own son. He's talking about Jesus. Now, if Satan hadn't really caught wind of what was about to happen yet, wasn't able to put two and two together, he's about to find out. Six months passes now between this, this time when John the Baptist is born and Zechariah says that, um, before this next scene happens. Six months from the birth of John to Elizabeth and Zechariah. Luke chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. It's a little bit long, but I'll read it to you. It's very familiar to most of us. Now in those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that a census be taken of all the inhabited earth. 
This was the first census taken while Quirinius was governor of Syria. And all the people were on their way to register for the census, each to his own city. Now Joseph also went up from Galilee to the city of Nazareth, to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and family of David, in order to register along with Mary, who was betrothed to him and was pregnant. While they were there, the time came for her to give birth, and she gave birth to her firstborn son, and she wrapped him in cloths and laid him in a manger, because there was no room for them at the inn. All this happening while Satan had his eyes other places looking for the birth of this Messiah right under his nose, and this is happening. Now, the first to herald the actual arrival of of Emmanuel, God with us, in the flesh, was again Gabriel, and he heralds the birth to shepherds. Not a royal entourage. Again, if Satan was looking for, like, where's the parade? We'll just follow the parade, and it'll lead us there. This humble little group of shepherds, and they're out, they're out in the field. It was dark. Remember that in their time, shepherds were out in the middle of nowhere, so there might have been little campfires and stuff, but it was dark. They're sitting around the end of a day. They got the campfire going. It's dark, and suddenly, Luke 2, 8 and 9, in the same region were some shepherds staying out in the fields, keeping watch over their flocks at night, and an angel of the Lord suddenly stood near them. Can you imagine the shock that that would be? And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terribly frightened. (laughs) Absolutely. Out there in the middle of nowhere, this is not something that typically happened to shepherds. Luke 2, 10 to 11. And so the angel said to them, Do not be afraid, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy, which will be for all the people. For today, in the city of David, there has been born for you a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. So shepherds witness this. They go there. They see the birth of of the baby, and they go back. Do they go back and have a parade? Do they go back into town and tell everybody? Do Do they tweet it out to all their friends? Probably not. What they do is they go back to their friends. They go back into the fields to talk to their fellow shepherds, and they spread the good news with their fellow shepherds. The most humble of all are the first to really know that the Mariah, the, the Mariah, Messiah has arrived. Still not, though, to the general public. Still not, though, to anybody, honestly, really anybody who mattered. Okay, the shepherds could go around telling anybody that they wanted, but they're like, you're a shepherd, you're a little off to begin with. Okay, so still not to the general public until eight days later. Eight days later, what happens eight days later is that according to Levitical law, it's time now to take your child into Jerusalem, go to the temple, have him circumcised and dedicated to the Lord. That happens eight days later. Now, think that you are Mary and Joseph. Put, your, put yourself in those shoes. You've been told, each of you separately by the angels, that your son is going to be kind of a big deal. And yet, you spend the first week cleaning spit up off of your shoulder and changing diapers and probably not sleeping through the night very well. And you're like, I thought this was going to be the Messiah. This is not how I pictured it. 
How would you picture it? They had no context. How do we know? Like, is he going to come out of the womb on a horse and ride off? Like, how does this look? They would have had no idea. And they had a full eight days to think about it. Like, did we hear right? Did we just, I don't know. Did we hallucinate that? Is that, is that, what's this going to look like? And they probably, they're human beings. They probably started having a little bit of doubt. Now, they get to the temple to circumcise their baby and to dedicate him to the Lord. And they meet a man there, a man named Simeon. Simeon doesn't get talked about a lot. And the other person we're going to talk about in a minute, even less. But they meet this man named Simeon. Luke 2, verse 25. And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. A lot there to digest, but let me just throw it out here. Number one, this man was righteous and devout. He was a righteous and devout Jew. Okay, expecting the Messiah, a certain type of Messiah, what their expectations were. He was looking forward to the consolation of Israel. The word consolation of Israel, it's a Greek word, and the consolation just is paraklesis. And paraklesis is a legal term, which means an advocate or an intercessor. So he was looking for someone to advocate for the nation of Israel to God. Someone to plead their case before God. And this man, Simeon, he carried, he carried some weight. It says he was righteous and devout, and he was there. So he carried a little bit of, uh, of weight with the words that he said. He was a regular at the temple. Luke 2, 26, 27, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit. Again, the Holy Spirit revealing the truth to him that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. So he wasn't there to begin with, but the Spirit led him there that day at that moment. And he came by the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought the child Jesus to carry out for him the custom of the law, again, remember, revealed by the Spirit. So the next thing, Luke 28, 29, then... He took him in his arms. So they're walking in with their baby, getting ready to circumcision and dedication. And this guy, Simeon, just walks up and says, give me the baby. Takes the baby away. So again, they're sitting there saying, what what is about to happen right now? He took him in his arms and blessed God and said, now, Lord, you are letting your bondservant depart in peace according to your word. Verses 30 to 32, for my eyes have seen your salvation which you have prepared in the presence of all the peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and the glory of your people Israel. Again, so much there. This is a devout Jew saying all the peoples, not just us, all the peoples. And he specifically says a light of revelation for the Gentiles. A devout Jew would not care a bit about the Gentiles getting anything revealed to them. This could only be by the Spirit that he would say these things. Only the Spirit could reveal to them. But here's the thing. Here's what's important about this. This man, who again, he was very devout, probably well known. He was carried a little bit of weight. And here he is. The holy men and the crowds and the others gathered at the temple now had heard him say these things. So the birth of the Messiah was now the worst kept secret ever. It was out. It was out there now. And now, 
consider again Joseph and Mary sitting there going like, we're not sure how this is working out. Did we hear it wrong? And then this man comes in, guy they don't know, and he proclaims that over him. <coughs> Verses 33, 34, and his father and mother were amazed at the things which were being said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to his mother Mary, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rise of many in Israel and as a sign to be opposed. So now they had somebody that didn't even know them reaffirming here what was happening, what was happening right there. And before they even had a chance to digest that, okay, Simeon is probably still holding baby Jesus at this point, and a woman arrives, and her name is Anna. We hear even less about Anna than we do about Simeon. Luke 2, 36, 37, and there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband for seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She did not leave the temple grounds, serving night and day with fasts and prayers. There's so much to digest there, but let me just hit it really quick. First of all, we don't know for sure who Phanuel is, but he was probably well-known since they mentioned him by name. Probably a man in the city of some standing. The tribe of Asher, though. The tribe of Asher was one of the lost tribes of Israel. Okay, we see that, that were carried into exile by the king of Assyria. But what's important is they are descendants of Jacob, the tribe of Asher. So apparently they're not completely lost. We're told that Anna was a virgin when she got married, got married young, was only married for seven years before she became a widow, but then she dedicated her life to God. Not remarrying, not doing anything, but spending night and day in the temple. We don't know if she actually stayed, like literally had a room at the temple where she stayed. Would have been highly unusual for a woman at all to be invited into that area. Maybe she was just there all the time, like people, like I say, I never leave here. Feels like I never leave the church. I do. I have a bed, and I actually sleep in it sometimes. So we don't know for sure, but this is an unusual situation. She spent her time at the temple grounds fasting and praying. This was not normal. This woman would have been well-known. Like, there's Anna. She's that special one. She had to be special to even be allowed in there. And it says she's a prophetess. Now think about this. It had been 400 years between the last thing that Malachi the prophet said until God spoke again through the prophets. A 400-year period of prophetic silence was broken by a woman, by a female prophet. Now Malachi one of the last things that Malachi said, Malachi is a, is a short book, but in chapter 4, verse 1, Malachi uh, speaks of this messenger of the covenant who would purify and redeem Israel. He says this, Malachi 4.1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of armies, so that it will leave them neither root nor branches. That's the last prophetic thing that Malachi says about a coming Messiah. And then that 400-year period is bookended with now Anna, this prophetess, saying this. 
Luke 2.38, and at that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak about him to all those who were looking forward to the redemption of Jerusalem. So here you have Simeon, well-known, just out of the blue, grabbing this baby from them, literally taking it and saying these things over the baby. And then Anna, in the middle of that, comes over and says, yes. Where Simeon was looking for an intercessor and an advocate, someone to plead the case of the nation of Israel to God, Anna looks for redemption. That word redemption, if we look at it closer, it's Greek, obviously in the translation, it's lutrosis is how that translates. And what it means is ransoming from imprisonment or debt for paying the price. So where Simeon was looking for someone to plead their case before God, Anna is looking for someone to pay the price before God. And both of them, right there at that moment, speak over what is going to be the Messiah on earth. Now, that paying the price didn't happen until years later, 33 years later to be exact, on the cross. Hebrews 9.2 says, Not through the blood of goats and calves, but through his own blood, he entered the holy place once and for all time, having obtained eternal redemption, having paid the price once and for all. And it's all in God's divine plan. Now, think those two, Simeon and Anna, were the first two humans really to herald the arrival in the flesh of the Messiah. Again, Emmanuel, God with us. Those were the first two. And it's no mistake. Luke is very much detail-oriented. Luke, in his gospel, is eyewitness testimonies and timelines, and you can pretty much bank on the way things happen there. Very, very accurate reporting of what happened. And he's very careful to make sure that there are two witnesses. Two witnesses. Why is that important? Anybody know? It's because it's the law. Hebrew law, you can find it in Deuteronomy, Leviticus, other chapters, but it states that at least two witnesses are required to establish something as true and accurate. Scripture says that where two or more are gathered together, we see that. We see the disciples being sent out two by two. It's very, very important that there are two people to corroborate what's happening here. And so what he's doing, these two people who are well-known in stature, they're not just anybody. They're not just shepherds. And it happens on the biggest stage in the city, right there on the steps of the temple. And they speak these words that no one can then unhear these things. And it's destiny. Uh, it's destined to be fact. I love that. And so picture Satan now finally hearing those words spoken out loud and going, that kid? To those parents? That is not at all how he expected it to look. And he had to know that he had been absolutely outwitted. Right under his nose, the Messiah came into the world. That's the tipping point right there. The accusers were war against those who would call themselves citizens of the kingdom of God had reached that tipping point. And there was no going back. His time was drawing to an end. So remember, wrap this up. The act of heralding. Heralding is announcing, be an ambassador between two warring parties, two parties in conflict. 
It is not peaceful, and it is definitely, definitely not passive. It is an active thing that we as disciples of Christ, that we do. It is meant first to be a gracious invitation, as I said last week. It is an invitation to all who will accept it. But then it is also a dire warning of the consequences for those who do not accept it. There are terms of surrender, and the surrender is to receive what's being offered to you. And if you fail to offer those, there are consequences. And that's what a herald does. Worship team, you guys can go ahead and head up. Christmas then, we bring it back. Bring it back to celebrating Christmas. However you do it, if you're a cool parent, you let your kid open a present on Christmas Eve, and then the rest Christmas morning. That's just my two cents. But however you do it, whether you do it with all the trappings and all the lights, or whether it's more of an intimate celebration at your house, however you celebrate it, it's meant to be a celebration that the one who was promised from the beginning who would redeem us, who would pay the price for us, who would intercede before God for us, the one who had overcome the world, the one who offers salvation through him in no other way, he has come into the world. Emmanuel, God with us. That is what we celebrate. And it shouldn't just be Christmas morning. It should be all year. We do give Christmas presents to one another. And that's meant to remind us. We think about the anticipation. Put Christmas presents under the tree. My parents would do it three weeks ahead of time. There would be presents would start showing up under the tree. This is the worst thing for a kid to sit and look at those. Ah, Shake them and shake them and peel up the edge of the paper. And it sounds fun, and it's kind of fun, and it's kind of funny, but it also builds an anticipation of the thing that's coming. That moment when you get to open it and you get to see that's what it is. That very thing. We have scripture, and we have time, and we have messages, and we have all this time to sit and anticipate the greatest gift ever given. That's what I think about on Christmas morning. Most famous scripture of all, John 3.16, has to be, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son so that everyone who believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. That is the greatest gift ever given. And Father God did that for you. And it was his plan from the very beginning. And he had you in mind when he did that, that he would redeem you. And he would pay the price. And that offer is there for anyone who is willing to accept it. In this world where there's always strings attached. And there's always, it's too good to be true. That's why I think the gospel message is so hard for people to grasp. Because you think, there's got to be something else to it. What am I signing here? What's going to happen now that I've signed the fine print? And you know what's happened is Christians, us, have attached all kinds of things to accepting that gift. And we've made it difficult for people just to go, this is a genuine, real deal offer. Christ did it freely. Let's stop adding our own conditions to it. Like, okay, now that you've done this, you got to live different. You got to get your life together. That's not up for us to say. 
And by doing that, we make the message of Christ and his gift difficult to accept for some people. It's a genuine gift given freely, and that's what we celebrate on Christmas. Amen? Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, so much that you gave your son freely and opening. The most precious thing in the world to you, you gave to us. And you sacrificed for us that thing that you loved the most. Father, we are humbled that you think of us. We are humbled that you orchestrated all of time from the very beginning for us. We can sit here today and every moment of every day and everything that has ever happened in the world, you orchestrated so that we could enjoy being in your presence. Father, the words humbled don't even approach our thankfulness for what you have done. Lord, we celebrate you and we celebrate your son, Jesus, not just in this season and on that day, but every day. Father, help us to be bold enough to be heralds of who Jesus is to this world. Not to rail against the world, but to lift up and glorify and celebrate your son, Jesus. Because the world has nothing to offer when you put it up against Jesus. Father, we thank you and we praise you this day and every day. And it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Hey, we're going to take communion together. We have prayer team in the back. If you need prayer for anything, for healing, maybe you've made the decision really in your heart to follow Christ for the first time. Someone in the back will help guide you through those steps. Maybe maybe you just need someone to help you know how to pray. And pray is just talking to God. We overcomplicate everything as humans. It's just talking to God. When we take communion together, again, we overcomplicate it so much. It's just thanking God. It's remembering what Jesus did and thanking him for that and saying, yes, I accept it. I accepted it when I gave my heart to Christ and I accept it every single day over and over again. And the act of communion is just a visible a visible sign of, of accepting that and standing along and saying, yes, I will carry that mission forward. I will herald who Jesus is to the world. So at the crosses, we have self-serve. You can go there and serve yourself. Gabe and I will be serving you up here. Let's do this with just genuine thankful hearts for what we have the blessed opportunity to celebrate together at Christmas. Amen? Thank you, guys.